0: and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, Daniel, Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in this kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king... he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed like he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Thanks, Dan.
1: Uh, Actually, before I begin, I uh, also should mention... uh, Michael and Sarah had a uh, baby uh, yesterday, so that's exciting. I, he, Michael sent me a picture, but I, I don't actually have any details, uh, like name or anything like that, so uh, does, does, anyone, does anyone know? <laughs> it Looks like an Evelyn to me, but uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I don't even know. Anyway, let's pray. Let's, uh, maybe let's give thanks to the Lord for uh, his gift to them. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing gift uh, of life and of children. Uh, blessed are those, uh, Lord, that you have given that great gift to. And Lord, we thank you uh, that we can rejoice with Michael and Sarah uh, at the gift of their child, the birth of their child. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would be with them, particularly as they adjust to the uh, new way of life, to uh, the things that they, the new challenges that they face. Lord, we ask that you would equip them to be godly and wise parents. Uh, And Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice with them, to celebrate with them, uh, and to walk alongside them uh, in the years ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're uh, joining us for the first time uh, today, uh, we've been working through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that I got the title wrong, uh, that the title for last week's sermon was supposed to be, The King Loses His Mind, but I accidentally said, The King Loses His Life, and I couldn't work out, I thought, had I just made a mistake? What was going on? It's not like me to make mistakes, uh, at, you know? Uh, <laughs> so so uncharacteristic. Uh, and I worked out what was wrong. I actually got last week's title and this week's title mixed up. So last week was supposed to be The King Loses His Mind and this week is The King Loses His Life, uh, evidently. Uh, and that's kind of obvious Obvious titles. Shows my uh, impressive creativity that I could come up with such wonderful <laughs> titles. So enigmatic, so Uh So, uh, so deep. And yet there is something uh, deep about the contrast between that passage that we looked at last week and the passage that we're looking at today. You see, sometimes in life you get a warning shot from God, don't you? Uh, You get a warning shot across your bow, as they say. You're doing something stupid, but everything turns out okay in the end. You're driving like an idiot, you roll the car, and you manage to walk away from the crash. And after you have that experience, you drive more sensibly. Sometimes you get a warning shot, but sometimes you don't get that warning shot, do you? Your mother tells you to drive more carefully. You don't listen. You ignore that advice. You drive like an idiot. You roll the car. And you're killed instantly. Nebuchadnezzar got a warning shot from God. He got a shot across his bow so that he could rethink his life. Belshazzar didn't. He didn't get a warning shot and he didn't rethink his life. Well, the events of this chapter revolve around That enormous party that Dan read about for us—it is an enormous party. There's a thousand nobles there. It's the biggest party that uh, bigger party than I've ever been to, uh, which is not saying much, to be honest. But uh, but Belshazzar is holding this enormous party with all the nobles from his kingdom. He's eager to impress, and as he's uh, so eager, so dead set on impressing these nobles, he decides that the everyday wine goblets aren't good enough. And so he sends for the gold and silver goblets from the temple. Uh, They're the gold and silver goblets that his uh, predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had stolen from the temple of God when Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked Jerusalem. It's such an ordinary act, isn't it? To to take one goblet, an ordinary goblet, and replace it with another. But like so often in life, deep rebellion against God is hidden in the ordinary and the everyday. An ordinary act expressed deep rebellion against God. Belshazzar basically spits in the face of God. He takes what's precious to God, he takes what was intended to be used to honour God, and he uses it for his party. He uses it to indulge himself and his friends. And what's worse, What was intended to be used to honour God, they used to honour false gods, these gods of wood and silver and stone and whatever else. See, right up front in this chapter, almost before anything begins, we're confronted with the great human sin. The great human sin in which we take what was intended to honour God and we use it for our own ends. Or we use it to worship what isn't God. So take some things that God has given us. Take, for example, alcohol. Even the Bible says that wine gladdens the heart. It's a great gift of God. Used appropriately, it's wonderful, but so often people take it and use it excessively in a way which satisfies us and dishonours God. Or take beauty. Normally, when someone creates a great artwork, you honour the artist, don't you? Not the artwork. You don't go to, uh, you know, what uh, is it, the Louvre, the Louvre, uh, in, uh, in Paris, and, uh, and look at the Mona Lisa and go, wow, that's an amazing frame picture, isn't it? Look at that canvas, that's amazing. And forget who it was that painted it. But so often, when we see people of great beauty, we worship them, don't we? We worship them and not God. Our our magazines are full of beautiful people. Our films are full of beautiful people that we bow down and worship. Or we use our own beauty to elevate ourselves rather than to elevate God. Or we take the abilities and the skills that God's given us and we use them to advance ourselves. So you might be a great athlete or something, or you know, wonderfully creative. But instead of using those abilities in a way which honours God's generous creativity and generous gifts to you, you use those things in a way which celebrate yourself. Use it in a way which makes you friends. Use it in a way which makes you the envy of other people. You see, the greatest way in which we take what was intended to honour God and use it for our own ends is with ourselves. We were we are created as instruments of honour for God. That's our great purpose. Not as a kind of a slavish duty We kind of honour God sort of begrudgingly. No, but to honour God is our great purpose, is our great joy. To honour God is actually to live, to taste life. We take what was meant to honour God and we use it for ourselves, for our own ends. It's the disease which affects all of humanity. And even as Christians, even as people committed to honouring God with our lives, we still fall into the trap, don't we, of honouring ourselves rather than God. But there's something about the way that Belshazzar did what he did, which is deeply problematic. There's something about it which is different to that. You see, Belshazzar did it in a sense with a raised fist. He took the things out of the temple, out of God's temple, and he and he said, "Stuff you, God!" Basically, he didn't care. You see, a true Christian might at times use for their own honour what God has given to us as gifts for his honour. But when we realise what we've done, we'll repent. We'll confess it. We'll mourn over what we've done. And we'll offer ourselves again to God and say, God, next time I'm going to use what you've given me for your glory. But if we constantly take what God has given us, if you constantly take what God has given you for his glory and if you constantly use it for your ends, for your glory, and there's never a hint of repentance, and there's never a hint of remorse, and there's never a desire to turn away, never a plea that God would change you or help you to honour him with your life. If that's you, then like for Belshazzar, the writing is on the wall. And what happened to him is a warning to you that you should turn to Jesus and follow him rather than seeking to honour yourself and to live for yourself. Well, we're confronted up front with that great human sin. And Belshazzar goes on to reap the consequences of that defiance against God When this hand appears out of nowhere and writes these words on the wall. He's utterly terrified. I think you would be terrified, wouldn't you, if a hand appeared out of nowhere and wrote words on the wall? I suspect that would be a terrifying event. His face turns pale, his knees knock together and his legs give way. He's overcome physically with fear. And like his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, he calls for the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. And once again, they have no idea what's going on. They haven't got a clue. And that makes Belshazzar even more afraid. Until that is the queen remembers that there's one guy. There's this guy, Daniel, who's been used before. And he knows, he can understand, he can interpret dreams. And so they call for him. And Belshazzar promises Daniel that he'll honour him uh, with riches and power if he can interpret this writing on the wall. The promise uh, to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom might seem a bit odd. <laughs> it's kind of a backhanded present. Uh, but it seems that Belshazzar was himself kind of like the prince regent. He was ruling together with his father. Uh, so so Belshazzar was uh, like the Prince Charles of ancient Babylon, uh, you know, the crown prince. Um, And he was the second in charge. So to to promise Daniel to be third in charge is really to offer him the next best position, the best position that he can offer. But Daniel is completely unimpressed by the offer. After all, what's the value of being promoted by a king who's going to die that night and whose kingdom is going to be taken away? Uh, It's not much of a promise. But he interprets the writing anyway because God has sent a message that Belshazzar needs to hear. But did you notice that before Daniel even gets to interpreting the inscription on the wall, he actually tells a story. He, tells a, he gives a history lesson. He recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Him God had given that greatness and glory and splendor, but whose heart had become proud and conceited. In his mercy, God had stripped Nebuchadnezzar of his crown. He'd driven him into the wilderness. He'd gone mad. God had done it to humble Nebuchadnezzar so that, the most, so that he would acknowledge that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And so they to acknowledge that God is the one who sets kings over kingdoms and God sets over them anyone he wishes. You see, Nebuchadnezzar needed to realise that God was in control. God was the great king, not Nebuchadnezzar himself. But why does Daniel give the the history lesson? Why does he say that? What's that got to do with Belshazzar? Well, the answer is in verse 22, where Daniel says, it gets to the point. He says, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You see, Belshazzar, Daniel's saying, you knew... You knew what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. You knew the lesson he was trying to teach. But you haven't done anything about it. You haven't listened. Notice that God holds Belshazzar responsible. He holds him accountable for learning the lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar. God holds Belshazzar accountable for learning the lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar. And God holds us accountable as well, actually, for learning the lessons that he's taught other people and that we have heard about. The ultimate rejection of that idea is enshrined in the sentiment which is all too common don't tell me what to do, let me make my own mistakes. The Bible is all about helping us not make the same mistakes that other people have made, actually. But even if we don't swallow that lie, we tend to assume, I think, that if God needs to teach us a lesson, he'll teach it to us directly. We assume that God will always act in our life to send us the message that we need to hear but God works in the lives of other people too and he expects us to be able to see that and to be able to respond to it as well so you might have to make up your mind about something maybe your career or whether to buy a house or something or whatever it might be and you might be eagerly praying that God would help you to know what to do the mistake would be I think To presume that all the insight that you need to make that decision would come from your immediate circumstances, from your immediate present. So you might hope that God will give you the answer by one day you open the Bible and the verse this verse jumps out at you, and you suddenly go, Well, that that's God speaking to me. That might be. Or you might want a great sense of peace about a decision or some other special feeling. God might work through that. That's true but it may also be that God's message and wisdom for you is contained in the life of a friend. You're trying to make up your mind about whether to pursue that career, and actually God's message for you is contained in the life of your friend who pursued that career 20 years ago and whose marriage broke down, whose family life fell to pieces because that career consumed their entire life. We can be so absorbed so obsessed with what God is doing in my life that we miss the fact that God is doing things in the lives of other people and communicating to us as well. We can be so obsessed with what God is doing in our life that we miss the fact that God is holding up a great placard to us when our friend burns out in in life, in the job that they have. That God is holding up a great placard saying, why don't you take a rest as well? We can be so obsessed with our own lives. We can also be so obsessed with the immediate, with what God is doing today. So obsessed that we miss the fact that 30 years ago, God taught someone else the lesson that we need to learn now. We're still, I think, we miss the fact that God taught the lessons that we need to learn today to people thousands of years ago. And he wrote them down in the Bible and he actually, he actually told us what the lessons are that we're supposed to learn. God expects us to learn those lessons and not just to wait for him to do something amazing, spectacular in our lives today. What's even more catastrophic, I think, is when people presume that unless God deals with them directly, that they must be going along swimmingly. So you tell yourself, well, if my life isn't falling apart, God has no message for me today. That was Belshazzar's problem, wasn't it? His life was going along swimmingly. There was no warning shot. But there was a lesson to learn, wasn't there? There was a lesson from the life of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. God can be patient with us. He can give us that warning shot, but we shouldn't presume on his kindness. We ought to take heed of the lessons that others around us learn, and particularly take heed of the lessons that those in the Bible learned as well. Well, Belshazzar didn't do that. He didn't learn that lesson, and so he set himself up against God, and he used what God had given for his glory and Belshazzar used it for his own glory. But finally Daniel gets around to explaining the meaning of the writing on the wall. There's a hand that appeared out of nowhere, wrote four words, mene, mene to Kale Parson. They're three Aramaic words. Mene you might know from the New Testament as a minor uh, and a unit of weight or, uh, or amount of money. Tekel is the Aramaic spelling of shekel, which you might also uh, might sound familiar, which is also a weight or an amount of money, and it's much less than a minor. And parson means something like half, which doesn't seem to mean a whole lot if you think about it. It's a bit like writing uh, on the wall kilogram, gram, half a kilogram. <laughs> it's kind of like, what is this? Is this a recipe for something? which actually one commentator suggests that it might be, but that's another story. A <laughs> recipe for disaster, yeah. So what's going on? What do these words mean? What do these meaningless words mean? Well, the trick is, actually, that each of those words is related to another word. It's a kind of a bit like a word play. Each of those words is related to, uh, to verbs. They're all nouns, uh, but they're related to verbs. So it's a bit like weigh and weight, Right? So weigh is a verb, it's a, it's a doing word, you weigh something and weight is what you uh, get at the end of it, it's, it's, it's a thing. Uh, but the words, those two words, one's a noun, one's a verb, uh, they're almost identical, they're spelled almost exactly the same. And it's the same with these words here on the wall in Daniel. Meneh is related to another word, manah, which means to count. God has counted, he's numbered the days of Belshazzar's reign. And they're limited days. They're limited to one day, in fact. Belshazzar will die that night and his kingdom will be taken away from him. Tekal is related to the word tekal, meaning to weigh. God has weighed. He's evaluated the life of Belshazzar and it's been found wanting. Perez is related to the word Paras meaning to divide. Belshazzar's kingdom will be divided. It will be taken away from him. It will be given to somebody else. It will be given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the writing on the wall came true. Belshazzar was killed. His kingdom was taken away from him. And Darius the Mede took over. The glorious life, the glorious kingdom which Belshazzar had built for himself which he was celebrating in his great party, that life is demolished in a sentence. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius Samid took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, it's, an, it's, a, it's a short, inglorious end, isn't it? To a magnificent kingdom. And yet it's a familiar story. 51 years ago today, actually, President uh, John F. Kennedy was driving through Dallas, Texas, when he was shot and killed. He was one of the most powerful men in the world. He was a popular president, but his days were numbered by God, and the kingdom which he had was given to others. How was his life measured? We know how it was measured by history, don't we? But how is it measured by God? Almost 47 years ago, Harold Holt, the uh, then Prime Minister of Australia, decided to go for a swim on the beach. And he never came back. He was the most powerful man in our country. His days were numbered by God. His power and the things that he built were handed over to other people. How is his life measured? I was at a seminar last week where we were reminded of Jesus' parable of the rich fool. I don't know if you remember the parable. There's a man who builds for himself great big barns worth of things big storehouse of all the things that he could possibly want. But one night when he least expects it, his life is taken away. He was a successful businessman. But this was Jesus' verdict on his life. Fool. Extraordinary, isn't it? He had everything the world could offer. And that was Jesus' verdict. You might build up a great little kingdom for yourself. Maybe you don't have that kingdom yet, but you're on your way. You've got the dreams. A solid share portfolio. Good super. A comfortable nest egg. A comfortable home. A well-paying job, a prestigious job, an exciting job, an easy lifestyle, great kids who top the class and everything or always win at the cross country. You might walk into the car park after church and before you hit the car you have a massive heart attack. on the drive home today as you're going through the traffic lights someone runs the red light plows into the side of the car and you're killed instantly an old friend of mine recently had a massive stroke he was at church he was down to read the bible when it came time to get up he couldn't do it he couldn't stand up He was sitting in church one night and his brain was hemorrhaging. Our days are numbered, aren't they? They're numbered by God. We try to count them but we have no idea when our time will be up. How will your life be measured and weighed by God? What will Jesus' verdict on your life be? Fool, there's only one question, really. I think that you need to ask to know what Jesus' verdict on your life will be. The question is, this are you following the King? Are you following King Jesus? or king you, or king somebody else, for that matter? Have you humbled your heart like Nebuchadnezzar did, or are you like Belshazzar, and you haven't learned the lesson? Have you humbled your heart like Nebuchadnezzar did and said, as we'll sing in a moment, take my life, Take my life that it may be all you purpose, Lord, for me. Take my moments and my days; let them sing your endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my feet and lead their way; never let them go astray. You see, your life will not be measured on your fortune or your success or your beauty, or your giftedness, or your career advancement, your popularity, the stability of your marriage, or even the straightforwardness of your life. They will be measured on one thing, and one thing alone. Do you trust and follow King Jesus? Let me pray. Dear Lord Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us. You speak to us in our lives sometimes and you pull us up short. You send that warning shot across our bow and you save us from great disaster. But Lord, thank you that you speak to us as well through the lives of other people. Lord, thank you that you have spoken to us in the Bible through the lives of other people. Lord, help us to learn those lessons. Help us to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learnt, where he humbled his heart and turned to you. Help us not to be like Belshazzar, who refused to listen. Lord, we ask that each one of us would be people who follow and love Jesus. For his sake we ask it. Amen.